You are listening to the Faith Conservationist Podcast with the Reverend Brett Jenkins, STS. In the midst of an increasingly toxic culture, this podcast is dedicated to the preservation of the Christian truths that were until recently universally accepted by Christians of all traditions and building up all the baptized into the fullness of what the Bible calls the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Here is Pastor Brett. Hello, and welcome to the premier faith conservationist podcast. I am Pastor Brett Jenkins, and I will be your host in the weeks and months ahead. I'd like to begin with a few words about who I am, why I felt compelled to produce a podcast in the first place, and what the purpose of this podcast is. First of all, I'm an adult convert to the Christian faith, a convert from atheism and secular humanism. My conversion came not through attending an evangelical rally, not by having Jesus touch my heart, not by having the sky open and the light of the Holy Spirit come pouring out upon me, or hearing a friend tell me the story of what their faith means to them. No, once I became open to the existence of God at all, through an unlikely book in a freshman English seminar, my conversion came about through the hard work of reading and comparing the truth claims of many religions, a few of modern origin like Christian science and Scientology, most of more ancient lineage, both East and West. Though the personal appeal of Buddhism was tremendous, and it is a religious tradition for which I retain a high esteem in its robust, undiluted Eastern form, once I became convinced of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, through an examination of the historical and archaeological evidence, both for and against it, I knew in spite of my every desire or wish, I had to become some sort of Christian. But what sort? Christians seemed to come in every flavor and variety. After more study and through the influence of my wife, I settled on the Lutheran Church as my home. Because the purpose of this podcast is not to focus on the denominational or confessional distinctives between Christians, but rather on building up all the baptized into the fullness of what the Bible calls the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints, I will not dwell upon my reasons for doing so. However, I do think that my Lutheran identity helps me address the issues facing this generation in our calling to contend for the historic Christian faith in a way that can be useful to all Christians, that is, all Christians who desire to be Christian, not only by association with institutions or congregations that have a proud history, but who desire to be Christians in the sense of having active in their hearts and minds the actual faith of the people who built those congregations and institutions. This series is not intended for knee-jerk conservatives, but rather people who desire, to the degree possible, to have coursing through their veins the faith of the apostles and their faithful successors in the church throughout the ages. Sad to say, many modern people who call themselves Christians believe there never was such a faith such a unity of conviction amongst Christ's early followers. Under the unexamined influence of the anti-supernatural assumptions that lie in the background of many modern Bible reading or exegetical methods, they approach the Bible and other church literature with an attitude of hostility, what scholars call a hermeneutics of suspicion, 
This is not only a shame, but it is, when you think about it for a moment, ridiculous. That a secular scholar, a person who does not count themselves a follower of Christ, and may even be hostile to some or all of the Christian gospel, that they would approach these texts in this way makes sense. That someone who calls themselves a Christian, whose very identity is the fruit of the faithful work of thousands of named and unnamed people, passing on to the next generation what they had first received through the very sorts of sermons, explanations, and tracts of which the New Testament and other early church documents are composed, that a Christian should receive these documents with suspicion rather than as a treasured inheritance is ludicrous. For what is the point of counting yourself a member of the church if you in large part despise your patrimony? This brings me to another reason why I have felt compelled to add podcasting to my already busy schedule as a parish pastor. While it is sad to say that there are many Christians who do not believe there was much, if any, unity amongst what early Christians believed, it is sadder still that there are many Christians in our churches today who explicitly do not desire to possess the faith of their ancestors if such a thing existed. I had not been a Christian long when I discovered that many of the people who attended my church on Sunday morning were uncomfortable with or ashamed of the particular assertions of the Christian faith. I do not mean they were ashamed of particular episodes or abuses in church history, which any Christian serious about the moral teachings of Jesus and the failings of human beings must be. Rather, they were ashamed of or embarrassed about the actual truth claims of Christianity. Some were embarrassed at a general level that the faith proclaimed by the church declared itself to be true not in a conditional way for some people, but in an unconditional way for all people. These folk often harbored no resentment toward any of the particular doctrinal or moral teachings of historic Christianity, but they felt an undefined sense of uneasiness at the scope of the Christian worldview. An uneasiness crafted perhaps in large part by the American cultural milieu of can't we all just get alongism. They were uncomfortable at Christianity's inclusivity, uncomfortable that it claimed to be not merely a spiritual system but an account of reality. For Christ was Lord of all, not merely Lord of some. Moreover, they were uncomfortable with Christianity's consequent claim of relevance for all people. Because Christ has jurisdiction over all people, regardless of their personal beliefs. Even when they believed, as Paul says in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and eventually every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, even when they believed that, they were squeamish at the proclamation of that reality, even within the confines of the gathered community of disciples. Such people were also embarrassed by Christianity's exclusivity, realizing that the necessary corollary to the church's claim to speak objective truths meant that accounts of reality that disagreed with the Christian one must necessarily be false, in whole or in part. Just as the claim that water is composed of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom means that any other account of water's elemental composition is false. So these people understood clearly that if Christ was Lord, 
It meant that Allah and Shiva and Odin were not. They knew this to be true and did not hide from it, but thinking of friends and family whom they loved that espoused very different beliefs, they were embarrassed by it. These emotional reactions were rooted not only in their cultural conditioning, but in their love for the people around them who did not share their Christian convictions, and so are not only understandable, but in some ways laudable. Though concern for other people's feelings should never ultimately keep us from speaking a truth they might find unpleasant, it should tailor our way of speaking to them. And too often throughout Christian history, Christians have used the truth of the gospel as a bludgeon to beat people about intellectually and emotionally, making ourselves feel good at others' expense. Such self-righteous behavior is not worthy of our Lord, who enjoined us through the scriptures to speak the truth with love, and in our interactions with the world to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But I also realized early on that in addition to such well-intentioned folk, there was another type of person gathering on Sunday mornings in the churches I attended, a type of person whose discomfort with the Christian gospel was far deeper and of a more fundamental sort. These were people who, for the most part, were raised in a Christian home, found aspects of Christian ritual, music, liturgy, or service to the neighbor socially useful or personally fulfilling, but who in large part despised the religious vision from which these expressions of culture grew. Far from cherishing the history of Israel, the apostles, the early church, and the scriptures that grew out of them as God's definitive revelation in history, these people viewed the particular claims of Christian faith as positive impediments to religious belief. Far from seeing the holy scriptures or the history of God's chosen people as God's self-disclosure and so things of inestimable worth, Such people saw the Bible and that history as primarily human things. They viewed the scriptures as remembrances of a more primitive people, as likely to be the bearers of evil as good, a mixed bag of spiritual stones from which a few gems might be gleaned by people with more refined modern perspectives, but much of which was merely human ballast to be discarded as quickly as possible. These are the sorts of people who write books with titles like Why Christianity Must Change or Die. For some of these people, the hostility to the historic faith goes even deeper, and they view a great majority of the traditional Christian teachings, both doctrinal and moral, as positive impediments to human progress, the wellspring of oppression and injustice beyond measure. In the words of one former bishop in my own denomination, and I am here paraphrasing, but paraphrasing accurately, What we have to understand is that the Bible is an old book, full of poetry and pious myth, written by long-dead, superstitious, heterosexual men. The authority of such people in things religious is not the Bible or even Christian tradition, but always some other ideology or worldview. Such people have appeared throughout Christian history from both the right and the left, but they are always to be feared, for they are even from the outset dishonest dealers. Rather than go down the street, hang their own shingle, and offer their ideas for consideration in the religious marketplace, as so many have done before them, they continue to abide in the church, sometimes even occupying positions of authority within her, 
but using their influence to dilute, undermine, and in the worst cases, even subvert her teachings. For such people, the church is a human institution, a purely human institution, whose cultural momentum is a useful energy to tap in the service of cultural, political, and spiritual goals completely foreign to Christianity and the Bible itself. In my experience, these people are true believers in whatever alternative religious vision motivates them, and as such, they feel justified in taking these steps, their own self-righteousness either blinding them to the basic dishonesty of their practices or justifying it in their own minds. For some people, the receipt in their weekly paycheck of funds donated by traditional Bible-believing Christians was a positive victory, for they were going to employ those resources for the undoing of the very mission for which they were donated. For them, Malcolm X's famous edict, by any means necessary, is the guiding principle. As one seminary professor proudly declared at a meeting I once attended, I practice guerrilla theology. I could go on, but there's little point. Humanity is creative in the ways of sin, and nowhere more so than when we believe we are acting in the cause of righteousness. As I believe Chesterton once noted, there are a thousand ways to fall down, but only one way to stand up straight. We are all sinners, myself most of all, and what is true of all of us is that we do not natively see the world aright. None of us is equipped by our experience, no matter how vivid or heartfelt, to correctly interpret the data we receive in this life, and interpret we must. For whatever information we collect, whether from books, life experience, or our own thoughts and emotions, none of it substantiates itself. The significance of any of the knowledge we believe we have accumulated in this life can only be known when we see how that information fits into the big picture. We need God's revealed perspective to make sense of our lives, because God alone can see that big picture. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was before all of our data. All of the data we collect exists only by His grace, and He will be after all of our data has turned to dust or been swallowed up in the collapse of our universe. Like the man born blind in the Gospel of John, we need God to open our eyes with the pure light of his divine knowledge. God needs to heal our native infirmity so that we can see the world as he sees it. If God has revealed himself, we would be fools to ignore this revelation. If he has not, we are like children playing a game of blind man's bluff where everybody is blindfolded. We keep following the evidence of our senses, but even when we stumble upon something we are convinced must be true, we can never know for certain if it is. As the author of this podcast, I believe that God has revealed himself. I believe that through the history of Israel, the person of Jesus Christ, and later the apostles, God has shown himself to us, has revealed himself in a way that helps us to make sense of all the other seemingly conflicting data that surround us in this life. 
Christians throughout the ages, despite our many differences, have clearly seen the same thing, have had our eyes opened in the same way by the same Lord, though we each see him from a slightly different angle. While it is certainly true that there are differences apparent between the letters of Paul, James, John, and Peter in the New Testament, and even among the Gospels themselves, these differences amount to but differences in detail and emphasis. When examined using the kinds of scientific tools that lawyers use in a court of law to determine whether a witness is telling the truth or not, what emerges is a picture of many witnesses relaying their own account of the same great historic events, the events leading up to, surrounding, and flowing from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. There has been, from the beginning, a broad consensus among all Christians of every stripe, in every era, about who God is and what he requires of us. In the year 434, Vincent of Laurens famously referred to this broad accord in teaching when he insisted that in the church, quote, we take the greatest care to hold that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all, unquote. This consensus fidelium, or faithful consensus, has guided the church for almost 2,000 years, and in order to avoid some of the Reformation controversies between Roman Catholics and Protestants, this consensus is what some Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox scholars have agreed to calling the great tradition of Christian teaching, in order to distinguish it from the traditions of less significance and about which there is justifiable dispute. The purpose of this podcast is to help educate people about what the content of that great tradition is so that they may praise God all the more fervently for it. The late Harold Bloom believed that the real religion of America throughout her history has been Gnosticism, a fact he rejoiced in because he considered himself a Gnostic. But Gnosticism in any of its many forms is actually a Christian heresy. It is a falling away from the teaching of the actual witnesses of Christ embodied into the scriptures into what seems to be more appealing or even more logical to our darkened intellects. Heresy is in fact error, and while error is something to work at eliminating in every aspect of our lives, it is especially important to do so when we are speaking about the things of God, where the knowledge we acquire affects the very state of our souls. Does this seem a bit overblown and unrealistic? Does putting the case about understanding the truth of historic Christian teaching in this way seem a bit melodramatic? It should not. While I do not claim that any person will be saved by the purity of their doctrinal understanding, I do believe it is the mission of the church to ensure that the fullness of God's revelation to us continues to be taught and preached, so that wherever we are in our spiritual journey, biblical understanding, or even lack thereof, we have the opportunity to return to that truth. This podcast is not about forcing anyone to believe anything. It is about ensuring what one ancient prayer of the church calls the pure light of God's divine knowledge, given to humanity in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth, 
and preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures and the unbroken testimony of the Church for nearly 2,000 years. It is about making sure that this continues to be available so that any who wish to turn to it and be illumined may do so. This is why I chose The Faith Conservationist as my title for this podcast. In the realm of natural ecology, a conservationist is someone who sees something unique, something precious, something of inestimable value that is threatened and tries to preserve it against that threat. Sometimes the threat comes from basically good people who do not realize the unintended consequences of their otherwise noble endeavors, like when a person building homes for families tries to build in an area inhabited by endangered species. Sometimes, though, the threat comes from genuine villains, people who either care for nothing but their own narrow agenda or who actively despise the natural treasures the conservationist seeks to protect. People who pose the first kind of threat are often the conservationist's best allies once they become aware of how their actions unintentionally imperil a beautiful, valuable, and irreplaceable thing. The great strides that the ecology movement has made amongst the middle class since my childhood involvement in the Cousteau Society demonstrate that, for most well-intentioned people, truthful information is persuasive. In the case of people who are small-minded or hostile, what is needed to conserve the cherished object is allies who are aware of the great value of what is being jeopardized and will form a united front to prevent the rogues from despoiling what can never be restored. In either case, the dissemination of true information is the conservationist's best weapon. I believe the Christian gospel is just such a precious resource, and as deserving of our conserving energies as any baby seal or stretch of rainforest. Indeed, it is the pearl of great price that puts in perspective all our earthly conservation efforts, rendering their work intelligible, making it more than just the futile labor of one of the 1% of species produced by the earth that have managed to avoid extinction. This is why in the weeks and months ahead, I will endeavor to put into plain words the historic, doctrinal, and moral teachings of the Christian faith, and investigate their ongoing significance for us today. I hope to demonstrate that all of these teachings are firmly grounded in the historical reality of God's interaction with the people of Israel, the church, and all humanity, preeminently through the person of Jesus himself. I will explore what most Christians have meant throughout history when we have spoken of the authority of Scripture, and I will explain in everyday language the most important things Christians proclaim about who God is, what He has done, and what He is doing now. I will also trace the outlines of the most common theological errors or heresies that well-meaning Christians have fallen into throughout history, and detail for you ways in which these errors are poking their heads up again in our midst. I plan to use the hot-button issues that prompted me to initiate this podcast as jumping-off points for my discussions, but the topics covered here will not be limited to them. In the near future, 
I hope to broadcast interviews with other theologians, men and women with greater expertise than I possess in certain areas of theology. And I plan that much of the future content of these broadcasts will be determined by questions submitted by you. I beg for your prayers as I begin this sensitive but I believe vital work. Pray that the Lord may illumine my mind as I research and write. Pray that I speak only what is pleasing to God. Pray that God may use my words to build up people in faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And pray that my own sins might not become a stumbling block to this work. Please, pray for me. And know that I am praying for you, for the church, and for the world. May we together see the day of our Lord and hear addressed to us on that day the words we all so long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Praise to you, O Christ. <laughs>